0: Start with the poem by Rumi. Coleman Barks named this A Northern Wind. A Northern Wind. Every second the question comes, How long will you stay, dregs? Rise. Do not keep stirring the heavy sediment. Let the murkiness settle. Some torches, however, even when they burn with spirit, give off more smoke than light. Some torches, however, even when they burn, give off more smoke than light. But no matter how hard you stare into muddy water, You will not see the moon or the sun. A northern wind arrives that burnishes grief and opens the sky. The spirit wants to walk out in that cleansing air and not come back. The spirit is a stranger trying to find a home somewhere that is not aware. Why keep grazing on why? Good falcon spirit, you have flown around foraging long enough. Swing back now toward the emperor's whistling. So today, the meditation virtues I want to talk about are bliss slash pleasure and play. There's an idea in Zen that especially Zen in America, that we don't do bliss, which is a kind of stupid idea. And I think that that may have come from hippies eating mescaline and showing up in zendos and the teachers not knowing what to do about that. It's true that it's not only about bliss or pleasure. It's not only about bliss or pleasure. Of course, that would be a big mistake, which very few people actually make, I think. In our practice, bliss is not hunted down. It's like a cat that comes and purrs in your lap because you're settled and you're not giving off too much neurosis. Bliss is how the Dharma purrs how the body indwelling in Dharma purrs and because the Dharma is always right here there's always some purring even right now even if you hadn't done session there'd still be some purring If you look at the Buddha's meditation instructions, the ones that purportedly the Buddha taught, they are very clear that the path to deeper release is through dwelling in bliss. It's unambiguous. And the logic there is that we skillfully dwell in what feels good hard to let go of ourselves in dry contact with life. Not so hard to let the mind dissolve like sugar and water when it comes to bliss. So this is not advice for a love and light spirituality, of course. In many Rinzai monasteries, the periods are brief. 20 minutes, 25, everybody does kinhin. So you don't cling, so you don't make a nest, a perch. And in some sense, this is not a beginner's teaching. Because beginner's practice, and sometimes we're beginners, beginner's practice has to start with some stability in first nen. Gotta actually just be here and just be able to be here. Maybe another reason that Zen in America tends to get a little stupid about meditation is because people are so afflicted by the inner critic that if meditation is presented as a skill, people get unhappy because then they feel like they found another thing that they could fail at. And so it's not presented as a skill, it's presented as just sit there, you're already there. I happen to be leading an inner critic retreat next Saturday for anyone who's interested. A little plug. So. We have to let go of the idea of no pain, no gain. I know I've said that a number of times, but that logic can fly under the radar. No pain, no gain. Someone could argue actually, until you allow yourself to rest in bliss, there will be no gain or there won't be the deeper loss that you actually desire. You might come up against issues of unworthiness. Again, if this has become some kind of punitive thing, you might feel like you're not supposed to feel good. Why should I deserve to sit down and be uh, in rapture? The world is on fire. So in many approaches to practice we invite and we indwell with bliss as a solvent for fixation for rigidity. I have a personal ethic that if I recommend a student do something, I practice it myself. So I was working with The bliss in the body yesterday, and it wasn't long after resting in the bliss in the body that all my tension went away. There's a little bit of sore shoulders from doing this. Because actually, that level of bliss is more fundamental, more fundamental body than the, the meat body, the physical body. We discover that. When we talk about bliss, it may show up in the sense of uh, vibrancy or energy or pleasure moving through the body, but even just the unfixated mind is itself a kind of bliss. If you notice that when you're chewing something over, both your face and your brain become like a fist or a raisin, they're a little bit. That's a tension. You could actually learn to subside some of the winds of the mind just by learning to relax your brain. So, in a way, it's, it's relative. What we call bliss is just the absence of tension, like an orgasm. Why does an orgasm feel good? Because there is a build-up and release of tension. So we want to use bliss and not be used by it. Let a teacher who you work with talk to you about that. Let me just practice with bliss for um, a second. So I'm gonna invite you into a practice if you like. Begin by opening your eyes And become aware of the space in the room and just let your thoughts melt in that space like snowflakes in sunlight And just feel the quality of space Feel the absence of mind seizing around something. Let awareness and space just blend together. That's a kind of bliss. And then tune into your body. And the presence of the body is a presence of textures. And tune into the textures of movement You might find there's pulsation, like a liquid quality. Might be radiation, like heat, breath of heat. There may be tingling, especially having meditated for a week. Tune into your chest and the area around your heart. Just indwell with that. And If you find there's any movement of energy, relax into that energy. As if you Pull the drain on a sink. Let your mind drain out down into the heart and that energy. Listen to the sound of the wind. Kind of like sometimes we want to bury our face in a lover. Bury yourself in the sound of the wind. An old koan says the wind moves through the old pine trees. Hearing it closer, the sound is better. That sound is very close. So there's gross pleasure. If you don't treat the breath as like this tool that's going to get you to the good place, to simply breathe feels good. Each inhalation is this inner caress. We can glide over that and miss its nourishment. I like to just meditate with my heartbeat, just feel the heart beating. Some people are very frightened by that. So there's the gross pleasure of the body. What I mean by that is just the the meat body and its miracle. And then there's these more subtle currents of energy that begin to open as we settle into First Men. There are other kinds of bliss There's the bliss of self-forgetfulness. We talk about the three bodies of the Buddha. You've been chanting it during Oriyoki. Dharmakaya, sambhogakaya, nirmanakaya. Nirmanakaya is when we are so involved in just responding to life that we're free. Someone calls and we turn our head. We're unhooked from self-concern. We don't quite know who we are or what we want. We let the universe recreate us moment by moment. And there is just the relief, the relief from the tight-brained fixation on oneself. Maybe part of the instinct to have children is a hope that somehow it will help me become a little bit less fixed on myself. And it hadn't happened at work yet. It hasn't happened with my wife. Well, maybe if a baby comes, I can get over myself a little more. So the nirmonikai is calling us There's the pleasure of immersion in what's deeply meaningful. That's a kind of bliss, to actually be doing what you most want to be doing within your limitations. Ideally, that's a good part of what uh, ordination is. You've deeply committed to what you find uh, meaningful, and there's pleasure in that immersion. Ideally, that's what marriage is, any kind of deep commitment. Art. A little bit more about bliss. I like to um, see what's in the media about meditation. This is an article. article. I don't forget the date, claiming that the introspective practice has completely changed his life, local Ellensburg, Washington man, Simon Tremor, told reporters Wednesday that his daily meditation routine was really helping, himself, was really helping him stay self-centered. Practicing meditation every morning allows me to settle down and really focus on myself, said Trimur claiming that just 15 minutes of breathing exercises before work has markedly improved his ability to silence the distracting voices of those around him (laughs) and foster an enduring sense of egotism. Before I know it, the needs and wants of others melt away entirely. (laughs) The weight of their problems just disappears, and all that remains is the peaceful sense that the universe is made for no one but me." (laughs) That's from uh, an article from America's most trusted news source, The Onion. (laughs) Daily meditation really helping man stay (laughs) self-centered. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, play. That was my, my, my segue into play and humor. we to start with another short, invite you into a, just a short guided kind of meditation. There are some practices that all they are about is tilting the way you see things. Just inviting a different perspective. So open awareness as you've as you've been as you've been doing and just view the sensations of your body as a kind of play. That your body is sensations playing. They pop in and out of existence. A breath comes and then hides from you, a heart is dancing and expand that to include your mind. View your mind as just play. Thinking is how mind likes to play and let it do that. mind plays in images and words and judgments and all that stuff. And You can open to include how nature plays. The wind is playing with the trees right now. I laugh at the human-centered perspectives, we're sure we know what's going on. The forest might be just full of delight in what it's doing right now. In uh, Soto tradition, we have um, roaming and playing in samadhi as an ideal. Right? That when we're functioning freely, it's like play. It's like a bee going from flower to flower. Right, The bee gets something, the flower gets something, but it's all light and easy. It's a mistake to think that Somehow, spirituality is disconnected from the the realities of the world. Someone like um, Hongzhi, there's a story... I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that correctly. Hongzhi, there's a story that... there was a great famine during a number of years at his monastery, and he had something like 1,500 practitioners, and it caused a controversy because he took away one of the meals of the monks in order to feed the village people. Because as a practitioner, you have a different kind of food. Our forebears played in response to the darkness, not turning away from it. Koan practices play, engaging life, Work practice is a zesty expression of practice energy. Something I haven't highlighted from Hongzhi's teachings is each of them is kind of a complete description of of the path. And they all end with some encouragement, injunction, to function in service, to roam and play in samadhi. And his vision was something like, we, we sit, and in that sitting, we, to whatever degree, we touch transparency, we're filled with spiritual energy to the degree that we can empty, and then that energy wants to play. And we do that. We give, we serve in whatever way is appropriate to our sphere, and then we return. And those feed into each other. Yin embracing yang when we sit, active reception. And then yang embracing yin when we serve, receptive action. And he envisions it as an alternation two sides of the circle. So what if the chi that gathers in stillness loves to play, loves to move towards free expression? And what if it's our task to let it play and let it play in the most meaningful way that we can find? All beings dwell in your eyeball. Not a metaphor. All beings dwell in your eyeball. And so we shouldn't ignore, we can't ignore the beings that dwell in our eyeball. I believe the ancestors say that all we need to do is make sure we respond to the beings in our eyeball. And if we truly do that, that's, that's enough. It's not a shut eyeball, it's an open eyeball. So you talk about one thing and you, in, you implicate the other. I want to say something about seriousness. If bodhisattvas can't be playful or humorous, it's kind of bad press for the Dharma. We have our times when we, we can't be playful or humorous. But it's an invitation to look at something. I once took myself very, very seriously. I was a very serious practitioner, or so I thought. So there's an affliction of seriousness. And if you feel that you are afflicted with seriousness, maybe it's not so easy to tell from the outside, someone could have a very light heart and have a kind of stern demeanor. The reverse could be true as well. If there's the affliction of of seriousness, You might ask, are you viewing something as more solid than it actually is? The world out there is... fill in your blank. Affliction of seriousness could be viewing something as more final than it is. We forget impermanence. The affliction of seriousness could be viewing something as one more one dimensional than it is. If you ever get to go to Kyoto, you're good to visit uh, Ryo Anji, one of the most famous rock gardens. And the thing about Ryo Anji is no matter where you sit, you can't see all the stones. No matter where you sit, you can't see all the stones. Can you see the back of my hand? Affliction of seriousness could actually um, be that we're believing something is more important to the functioning of the universe than it actually is. I mean, on a just very mundane level, sometimes I plan my day and I, I schedule uh, whatever, and then I get all stressed out about this thing that I decided I had to do, that has utterly no implication for anybody but my own thought process. And I'm getting all irritated and angry at my girlfriend for trying to talk to me between appointments because I got to get to that thing that, oh, I decided I had to attend that free webinar on crystal healing. (laughs) There's a time for losing the forest for the tree. It's why we need teachers to do deep dharma practices, to lose the forest for the tree. And there's a time we lose the forest for the tree. A simple way to work with all of this is just to ask, why am I so serious about this? Why am I so serious about this? I used to um, frown a lot and I would never know it. you can't see all the rocks in the garden. I used to frown a lot and I would never, I wouldn't know it. And then occasionally Chosen would walk by me and go. <laughs> <sighs> and I thought I had made some progress on that, but then one time I went into Sanzen with Shoto Harada Roshan, he just looked at me and went. <laughs> Granted, he would walk the kesaku every day, and you did not want to be hit by that man. <laughs> so sometimes we have deep things to resolve, things of gravity, things uh, solemn things. The near enemy of this kind of play would be frivolity, and not... For example, living in the fire of our longing and just being, you know, you know what frivolity is and how that's a strategy. Sometimes we have deep things to resolve and unfortunately for some of us, it could be 10 or 20 years of practice. There's no timeline. The idea is to give up wanting it to go away and to enter the koan that it presents. We live in solemn times. For some, it's a dilemma whether being lighthearted is even okay. So that's probably the 2022 reason why we shouldn't talk about bliss. All of you privileged Buddhists talking about bliss, when the forests are being cut down, that kind of thing. And it's good to imagine that it was the same for our Dharma forebears. They lived in solemn times. In a way, more as solemn as these, just in a different way. Good to read the history of China and the mass starvations and crushing of empires and and the spirituality that flourished and was a refuge during those kind of times kind of interesting to from our modern point of view to look at people whose activism is a contemplative life, and go, ah, a bunch of spiritual bypassers. It's a strange, strange conclusion. Our state of being or mind is like the painting on the wall of a room. Even if you don't spend time gazing at it, it puts its energy out into the space. So one of the questions of Dharma is what kind of energy do we want to be putting out into the space? Sometimes we have deep things to resolve, things of gravity, but we don't have to identify with them and they don't have to identify us. May have experienced those kind of times where you finally let your the pain in your heart unfurl as it wants to you stop fighting against it and, and uh, kind of the way that grief can undo you and the way just like in sitting we fight against being undone we fight against grief undoing us you stop fighting against that pain and you finally weep and you're so relieved that you laugh and you're light-hearted you've let in the depth of pain that you feel. And rather than becoming a sourpuss, you begin to lighten up. I'm gonna share another article from America's most trusted news source. This one's called, God Wonders What Happens to Humans After They Die. Calling it one of the greatest mysteries in life, the Lord God Almighty, our Heavenly Father, admitted Wednesday that he often wonders what happens to human beings after they die. The creator of heaven and earth, who said he has often grappled over the millennia with the uncomfortable reality that humans never come back after they die, (laughs) told reporters he had absolutely no idea what, if anything, people experience once their vital organs permanently cease to function. The supreme being said, some say that when people die, that's the end, but who knows? (laughs) Adding that no one in the world could say with any degree of certainty whether one's existence completely ceases with death. He said, others say that at the moment they die, people walk toward a bright light, and into another world. But the thing is, only the people who die are the ones who know. I just know that it would be awfully sad to think that when they pass on, they're gone forever. The God of Abraham said that the varied religious and spiritual beliefs about the afterlife held by his 7.1 billion human creations were nothing more than speculation, (laughs) before noting that he doesn't think science and philosophy have all the answers either. He who commanded light to shine out of darkness went on to state that accepting death as a natural part of human life did not make it any less frightening for him to contemplate. (laughs) That's the troubling thing, he added. They're living and breathing one moment with all their thoughts and desires known to me, and then they're gone the next. (laughs) Concluding that when it came to what he described as the great unknowable beyond, God said his guess was as good as anyone's. (laughs) So on to some serious matters. Hongzhi. Hongzhi. This one is called The Misunderstanding of Many Lifetimes. Emptiness is without characteristics. Illumination has no emotional sentimentality. With piercing, profound radiance, it mysteriously eliminates all disgrace. Thus, one can know oneself. Thus, the self is completed. Maybe in the the dimension of motion the relative world where everything by necessity always changes, there is no such thing as completion. There is and can be no rest, no final satisfaction, no ducks in a row on the river, in the river, as the river of conditions. Thus one can know oneself, thus the self is completed. We all have the clear, wondrously bright field from the beginning. Many lifetimes of misunderstanding come only from distrust, hindrance, and screens of confusion that we create in a scenario of isolation. That's so packed with goodies there. Many lifetimes of misunderstanding, whether you think about that as You've done this human thing before, I don't know. God's not sure either. Whether it means how you change through the decades, different people you've been. Many lifetimes of misunderstanding come only from distrust. Stop there for a second. Distrust of what? What is it, what are we distrusting when we can't fully relax? What is it that we distrust when we can't let our mind dissolve like sugar and water? Lifetimes of misunderstanding come from distrust, hindrance, and screens of confusion that we create. Now, this is not to say that all suffering comes from your own brain. We. We all weave We all weave the screens of confusion and and ensnare each other in them, screens of confusion that we create in a scenario of isolation as if we are just these little isolated capsules trying to avoid each other or mate with each other. With boundless wisdom journey beyond this, forgetting accomplishments, not only forgetting accomplishments, but after you've Done your due diligence, forget mistakes. Straightforwardly abandon stratagems. That's what it says. Straightforwardly abandon strategies and take on responsibility. Here we are now. We've gone from sitting with all beings in your eyeball to the play of that energy. Take on responsibility, having turned yourself around, accepting your situation, not wishing if only I had the better conditioned configuration. There are more desirable conditioned configurations for sure. Having turned yourself around, accepting your situation, if you set foot on the path spiritual energy will marvelously transport you. There's something on our side. There's something on our side. Spiritual energy will marvelously transport you. Contact phenomena is meet life with total sincerity, not a single atom of dust outside of yourself. So beautiful. Thank you all.